Yeah, it's that time. QuackCast 42, your review of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine, a.k.a. scams. This episode is called The Tamiflu Spin. It is a rehash of my science-based medicine entry. So, no intro, let's get to the meat of the matter. Business first. For those thin-skinned little crybabies who focus on 30 seconds of a 45-minute podcast where I may disparage former President Bush, I note the following. One, during the Clinton years, when I made allusions to his infidelities and dope-smoking, I never had a complaint. Never. Not one. Two, only when I make jokes about the right do people whine. Three, if you don't like it, listen to something else. In the end, I do this podcast for me. Four, when and if President Obama does something, anything, I will make fun of that. But as of February 2010, it's hard to make fun of nothing. Five, I am the kind of a-hole that when told not to do something, I'm more as like to do even more of it. If you poke me with a stick, I tend to get more obnoxious. So, in response to the complaints, expect an increase rather than a decrease in comments about the most incompetent president ever. But, let's move on to the meat of the matter. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I offer two disclaimers. First, I am a practicing infectious disease doctor. It is a simple job. Me find bug, me kill bug, me go home. I spend all day taking care of patients with infections. My income comes from treating and preventing infections. So I must have some sort of bias. The main one being I like to do everything I can to cure my patients. Second, in 25 years, to my knowledge, I have accepted one thing from a drug company. Unison Rep, I spell it U-N-I-S-I-N, upon transfer from my hospital, sent me a Fleet's Enema with a Unison sticker on it. I show it proudly to all who enter my office. But I do not even eat the drug company pizza at conference, and I cannot begin to tell you how painful that is. Mmm, pizza. As we leave, I hope, the 2010 H1N1 season, and are entering the seasonal flu season, although just where seasonal flu is, as of February 20th, there seems to be little flu in the country, I wonder why. But it will be interesting to see at the end of the season what effect the flurry of vaccination in October for H1N1 and seasonal flu may or may not have had upon this year's flu season. Or maybe we will just have a quiet year after the pain that was H1N1. There has been a flurry of articles originating in the British Medical Journal questioning whether Olsatamavir, also known as Tamiflu, I tried to speak generic, except for Lasix, which is like Jello, and that is also generic. But whether Olsatamavir is effective in treating influenza. The specific complaint at issue is whether or not Olsatamavir prevents secondary complications of influenza, like hospitalization and pneumonia. Although you would not guess that that was the issue from some of the reporting. As always, there is what the data says, what the abstract says, what the conclusion says, and what other people say about a given study. 
Reading what is said about the medical literature, especially in the popular press, is all about blind men and elephants. Each reader sees something different. Lucky for you, I see all and know all. There is evidently going to be an investigation by the Council of Europe into whether or not H1N1 pandemic was faked to sell more olsatanavir. Sigh. As if the corporate overlords would let such an investigation happen. I mean, you know that Roche, the makers of Tamiflu, is just funding the investigation to make it look like all those who investigate the pandemic are in conspiracy loons. And you have to look deeper than that. In fact, the Council of Europe actually has a European pharmacopoeia, which has standards for herbal drugs, homeopathic preparations, and homeopathic stocks. I am suspicious that they are actually in the pocket of Big Herb and Big Homeo, who are probably funding the investigation into Tamiflu to discredit Big Pharma to benefit Big Quackery. It's all circles within circles, and I read the Da Vinci Code. I know how the world works. Is Tamiflu effective against influenza? Let's start with background. I'm a practicing physician or a tool of the medical industrial complex. What do I want to know about a drug to help determine its efficacy? I would like a mechanism of action that would prevent the replication of a virus. I can't kill a virus like I can kill a bacteria, but at least I can stop it from reproducing. Would that that power is more widely applicable. I would like the antiviral to be effective in the test tube at physiologically achievable concentrations. I would like the antiviral to be effective in an animal model. I would like the antiviral to be effective clinically, both on challenge studies, if ethical, and in the real world. And then there is the virulence of the organism, since there can be strain-to-strain -strain variation in influenza virulence. Some influenza strains are better at spreading, others are better at killing, than other strains. Every conspiracy wackaloon seems to have forgotten that when H1N1 started in Mexico, it apparently had a horrific mortality rate in hospitalized patients. Quote, by 60 days, 24 patients had died, 41.4%, end quote. I think sometimes a people's retention span is about a week. The worry was that there was going to be a repeat of the 1919 influenza pandemic. Fortunately, the subsequent mortality rate was much less than the Mexican experience as influenza swept the world. H1N1 turned out to be highly infectious but low virulent strain of flu. Well, relatively low virulence. If it killed you, it wasn't so low virulence. But that's this time. But I would still fret that one day there will be a repeat of the 1919 pandemic. The current bird flu has a 66% mortality rate, but it is not yet efficiently spread human to human. Maybe, someday, it will gain that ability. But at the beginning, no one knew what the mortality of H1N1 or bird flu was going to be, and they tried to prepare accordingly. Of course, public health officials are always in a no-win situation. Either they are going to over-prepare or under-prepare, and as a result, it best look like a fool and at worst look evil. Next time they may err on the side of underpreparing so they are not accused of faking a pandemic. It's why, from the perspective of an infectious disease doc, the Council of Europe looks like a council of buffoons. Then there is the host's ability to respond to an infection. 
just as there is variability in the virulence of a pathogen, there is a variability in the host's ability to control the infection. It is often the case that whether you live or die from an infection may be due more to your immune system than to the virulence of the pathogen. If you PubMed the terms toll-like receptor, polymorphism, and infection, you will get further information that is beyond the scope of this entry. To judge from historical data from Utah, there may be an inherited predisposition to dying from influenza. And H1N1 was not an insignificant disease. By CDC estimates, as of February 2010, 41 million people, or perhaps as many as 84 million people, have gotten H1N1. It caused a median of 250,000 hospitalizations and a median of about 11,000 deaths. Most of these deaths have occurred in people ages 18 to 64, about 58%, and another third of the deaths were in children. This was not an insignificant pandemic. Now, I'm sure someone out there is going to call BS. 11,000 deaths? I don't think that many died. I don't know anyone who died of influenza. Well, remember, 40,000 or so die every year in car accidents, and another 40,000 from handguns. In 52 years, I have never had a friend or an acquaintance die of either. 11,000 deaths are easily lost in a country of 300 million people. In the H1N1 pandemic, however, although mild, had a disproportionate mortality in children, quote, between May and July 2009, a total of 251 children were hospitalized with to H1N1 influenza. Of the children who were hospitalized, 19% were admitted to the intensive care unit, 17% required mechanical ventilation, and 5% died. The overall death rate was 1.1 per 100,000 children, as compared to 0.1 per 100,000 for seasonal flu in 2007, end quote. And pregnant women were disproportionately killed by influenza, although curiously pregnant men were protected. Quote, data were reported for 94 pregnant women, 8 postpartum women, and 137 non-pregnant women of reproductive age who were hospitalized with 2009 H1N1 influenza. Dot, dot, dot. In all, 18 pregnant women and 4 postpartum women, total 22 or 22%, required intensive care, and 8, or 8%, died, end quote. So who gets the disease may be, depending on the organism, be more important than the strain of infection. Then there is how strong or powerful, and these are meaningless terms to an infectious disease doc, there is no such thing as a strong or powerful or big gun antibiotic. I always tell residents that if a physician uses these advertising terms, it is 100% sensitive and specific that the person using them knows nothing about antibiotics. But the terms are part of the popular language of medicine, so I will grudgingly use them here. I will gargle with Listerine later. But it does depend on how strong or powerful an antibiotic is. Antivirals are not that effective because they do not kill viruses. Most of the time, they only halt viral replication. And whether or not viruses are alive is a topic for philosophers, not infectious disease doctors. Given the prodigious replicative capacity of viruses, it is going to be impossible to shut down every virus from replicating with an antiviral. 
With HIV, it took the combination of three different antivirals to maybe almost completely shut down viral replication. And as those without immune system prove with depressing regularity, no antibiotic will work for long if the host immune system cannot help to control the infection. And finally, there is promptness of therapy. For serious infections, even a day in the delay of appropriate antibiotics can dramatically increase mortality. So the later you begin therapy, the less effect one should expect. This is one of the issues with a disease with a very rapid onset like influenza, and why the challenge studies, where you can give the medication right after exposing the subject to influenza, will always show better effect. Viral replication will often rapidly outstrip the available antivirals. The earlier you give medications, the better, and with influenza and other viral URIs, there is often a delay of a day or two before a drug is prescribed. And even then, it will take four doses to have steady state levels where you can get a constant drug level available to inhibit the virus. So, what would I expect from an antiviral, from an influenza medication? Prevent disease after exposure. Decrease the severity of the disease. Prevent death in all cases. Prevent death in more severe cases. Generally decrease the odds of dying. Generally decrease the complications of the disease. Some combination of the above. These are all good endpoints. As a rule, I expect antivirals to lessen the severity of the disease if given early in the disease. I expect it to take the edge off the severity of the disease. So what can we say about olcetamivir? Does it have a mechanism of action that would interfere with viral replication? You betcha. Olcetamivir blocks the activity of the viral neuraminidase enzyme, preventing new viral particles from being released from infected cells. Not a thrilling mechanism of action. The virus can still multiply all at once if it infects a cell, and since no drug is 100% effective, one would expect it would slow down the disease, not stop it. However, sometimes, as we shall see, that may be enough to make the difference between life and death. Does olcetamivir work in the test tube? Oh yeah, sure, don't you know? In animal models? Oh yeah, you betcha. In human clinical trials? Oh yeah, sure. It is human clinical trials and the choice of efficacy endpoints where the current brouhaha <laughs> where the current brouhaha starts. The LA Times headline reads, British Medical Journal questions efficacy of Tamiflu for swine flu, or any flu, end quote. Well, no, it doesn't. As we will see, the LA Times headline writer is not much of a reader of content. The Atlantic, which has now supplanted the natural news for the worst medical coverage, has a headline that reads, The Truth About Tamiflu. Da-da-da-da. The opening paragraph reads, quote, Two months ago, we pointed out in our study on the flu in the Atlantic that the antiviral drug Tamiflu may not be as effective or safe as many patients, doctors, and governments think. The drug has been widely prescribed since the first cases of H1N1 flu surfaced last spring, and the U.S. government has spent more than $1.5 billion stockpiling it since 2005 as part of the nation's pandemic preparedness plan. Now it looks as if our concerns were correct, and the nation may have put more than a billion dollars into the medical equivalent of a mirage. This week, the British Medical Journal 
published a multi-part investigation that confirms that the scientific evidence just isn't there to show that Tamiflu prevents serious complications, hospitalizations, or death in people who have the flu. The BMJ goes further to suggest that Roche, the Swiss company that manufactures and markets Tamiflu, may have misled governments and physicians. In its defense, Roche stated that the company, quote, has never concealed or has any intention to conceal any pertinent data, end quote. Huh, the medical equivalent of a mirage. Death? Now, the Cochrane Review, upon which this whole brouhaha revolves, does not comment on prevention of death, nor does the British Medical Journal feature or editorial on the topic. I may be missing something, but after reading the primary sources, which did not mention death, it looks like the Atlantic is making up the results about the most important endpoint of any infection, life or death. The whole brouhaha is around preventing secondary complications or hospitalization. In the British Medical Journal articles, death takes a holiday. We are into the second paragraph, and already the Atlantic is apparently making things up. I can remember the day when I trusted the Atlantic. Interestingly, the Atlantic never quotes the results of the Cochrane Review. However, they suggest that the review demonstrates that Ulstatamavir is worthless. Does it? Let's start with the methods section. The Cochrane Review looked for randomized, placebo-controlled trials. The Cochrane Gold. Quote, we excluded experimental influenza challenge studies as their generalizability and comparability with field studies is uncertain, which is a shame as the challenge studies always show efficacy. They are not representative of the real world because they have the best case for treating with an antiviral. You can start the medication right when the disease might start. Sooner is always better with infections. So they screened 1,416 articles and ended up with 29 studies, 10 for effectiveness, the cream of the crop. Now, 1,416 articles is a lot of articles. I know they are not the creme de la creme, but is why I'm not a fan of just relying on meta-analyses alone. That is a lot of ignored information. And the Cochrane results? Well, here let's quote from the abstract. Quote, Neuraminidase inhibitors have modest effectiveness against the symptoms of influenza in otherwise healthy adults. The drugs are effective post-exposure against laboratory-confirmed influenza, but this is a small component of influenza-like illness, so for this outcome, neuraminidase inhibitors are not effective. Neuraminidase inhibitors might be regarded as optimal for reducing the symptoms of seasonal flu. Paucity of good data has undermined previous findings for ulcitomavir's prevention of complications from influenza. Independent randomized trials to resolve these uncertainties are needed, end quote. I am already confused. They are effective, but they are not. But the abstract does suggest that in normal people, ulcitomavir has modest efficacy. And remember the population, healthy adults. Now, remember that quote, quote, the drugs are effective post-exposure against laboratory-confirmed influenza, 
that this is a small component of influenza-like illness. So, for this outcome, neuromandidase inhibitors are not effective, end quote. It works against the flu, which is due to influenza, but is not effective against flu-like illnesses, which is due to influenza, but many other infections as well. Well, duh. Penicillin works against streptococcus pneumoniae, which causes pneumonia, but it will not work against all pneumonias, which can be due to a wide variety of organisms. This is kind of a dumbass conclusion, if you ask me, but it does highlight a clinical problem. Patient comes in with a flu-like illness. Is it due to influenza? Rapid testing is not 100%, and other testing modalities may not be available. Should you treat empirically? Should you test? Should you wait? It's not a clear-cut question. Actually, it's a clear-cut question. There's just not a clear-cut answer. Later, there's the take-home message box, which says, quote, What is already known on the topic? Neuraminidase inhibitors, especially ulcitamivir, have become global public health drugs for influenza. They prevent symptoms and shorten the duration of illness by about one day if taken within 48 hours of the onset of symptoms. Toxicity and effects on complications have been debated. What this study adds. Neuraminidase inhibitors reduce the symptoms of influenza modestly. Neuraminidase inhibitors reduce the chance of people exposed to influenza developing laboratory-confirmed influenza, but not influenza-like illness. Duh! Evidence for or against their benefit for preventing complications of influenza is insufficient. Evidence for or against adverse reactions is lacking, although ulcitamivir causes nausea. End quote. To me, the take-home message suggests efficacy. Now let's move on to the results in the discussion. Perhaps that will clarify the situation. Quote, the data suggests that neuraminidase inhibitors are effective at reducing symptoms of influenza. The evidence is of modest benefit, reduction of illness by about one day, end quote. Which is what I would expect in a population of healthy, mostly young people with seasonal flu of low virulence. Note the caveats. Young, healthy people with influenza of low virulence. Every season we have new strains of influenza, and the ability of influenza to kill people varies from year to year. Quote, This benefit has been generalized to assume benefits for very ill people in hospital. This seems reasonable, although it is worth remembering that we have no data to support this, and it is unlikely that ethics committees will allow a trial of no treatment for people with influenza who have life-threatening diseases, end quote. Yeah, we will probably not have randomized trials in the seriously ill. But while we do not have randomized controlled clinical trials, we do have data to support the use of ulcitamivir in ill patients. Not no data. We do not have randomized placebo-controlled trials, but we do have good information. For example, in the Mexican experience with H1 mentioned above, quote, after adjusting for reduced opportunity of patients dying early to receive neuraminidase inhibitors, neuraminidase inhibitor treatment versus no treatment was associated with improved survival, odds ratio 8.5, end quote. And in pregnant women with H1N1, quote, as compared with early antiviral treatment administered two days after symptom onset, 
in pregnant women, later treatment was associated with admission to an intensive care unit or death. Relative risk, 4.3, end quote. For this experience with H1N1, quote, of the 268 patients for whom data were available regarding the use of antiviral drugs, such therapy was initiated in 200 patients at a median of three days after the onset of illness. Data suggests that the use of antiviral drugs was beneficial in hospitalized patients, especially when such therapy was initiated early, end quote. That's H1N1. What about seasonal flu? Quote, no randomized trials of neuraminidase inhibitor treatment of hospitalized influenza patients have been conducted. However, three observational studies suggest that olsatamivir treatment of hospitalized patients with seasonal flu may reduce influenza mortality. In one prospective Canadian study among hospitalized patients with seasonal flu, in which 71% began olsatamivir treatment greater than 48 hours after illness onset, olsatamivir treatment was significantly associated with a reduced risk of death, odds ratio 0.21, within 15 days after hospitalization as compared with untreated patients. In a sub-analysis in a Hong Kong study of hospitalized patients with seasonal influenza patients, olsatamivir treatment initiated less than 96 hours after illness onset was independently associated with decreased mortality as compared with untreated patients. A retrospective chart review of hospitalized seasonal flu patients in Thailand, including 35% with radiographically confirmed pneumonia, reported that any olsatamivir treatment was significantly associated with survival, odds ratio 0.11, as compared with untreated patients, end quote. In the seriously ill, people who are going to die from influenza, taking olsatamivir appears to decrease the odds of dying. Remember that the authors of the Atlantic article said olsatamivir didn't prevent death. Maybe their firewall blocks access to PubMed and Google. Maybe they are no good at evaluating evidence. Or maybe they don't like it when facts get in the way of a good story and so don't report them. So what would you do if you were in charge of public health policy and confronted with a new strain of influenza, be it H1N1 or bird flu, with a potentially catastrophic mortality rate? Ignore it? Or get as much olsatamivir and vaccine as you could get your hands on? Now, these are not the highest quality studies, but we do have a biologic mechanism. We have test tube and animal studies. We have challenge studies, and we have retrospective studies that show that olsatamivir has efficacy. We have a lot of data to support this drug in some patient populations, and that's always the fine point. The question is not whether olsatamivir is effective, but in what population the medication will be effective and for what strains of influenza. Certainly, I'm not going to withhold olsatamivir from a hospitalized pregnant female with presumptive H1N1 given an 8% mortality rate. No way. Does a 45-year-old with H1N1 or seasonal flu need olsatamivir? No. An 85-year-old with multiple medical problems? Probably. Nuance. Subtlety. Understanding the breadth of depth of a topic no longer seems to be part of the Atlantic medical reporting. I originally typed that last sentence as the Atlantis medical reporting. Pity I have to change it. 
because it seems that the reporting in the Atlantic has as much grounding in reality as Atlantis. But, to my mind, that seems to be a defining characteristic in the world of scams and those who rail against modern medicine, which does have no end of faults. But it's an inability to accept uncertainty and nuance. There's a subgroup of people who prefer to live in a black-and-white, binary world with simple explanations of good and evil. They seem to write for the Atlantic. The Cochrane Review states, because of the moderate effectiveness of neuraminidase inhibitors, we believe they should not be used in the routine control of seasonal influenza. End quote. The first half of that statement is a fact. The second half is opinion. The we are evidently Tom Jefferson, Mark Jones, Peter Doshi, and Chris Del Mar. Four people using the royal we. It is not a we that I would use for deciding medical treatment. It is one thing to say that if healthy people from age 14 to 65 is modestly effective, quite another to extrapolate that information to everyone, young and old, healthy and ill, pregnant or not. If during an outbreak large populations of people are ill one less day during widespread infection, the positive effects on people returning to work and school can be enormous. Whether olsatamivir is worth that cost in the breeding of resistance requires one of those complicated, cost-effective analyses that I never understand. In the Atlantic article, they confuse the treatment of seasonal flu studies in younger patients when there is some vaccine immunity and relatively low virulence with preparing for a new pandemic strain with no vaccine and what appeared at first to be a fearsome mortality rate. In hindsight, now that we know the virulence of H1N1, we did not need to stockpile the olsatamivir for H1N1. If it had continued with the high mortality rate and, based upon the studies mentioned above, we would have been glad they stockpiled the drug. And if avian flu becomes infectious while maintaining virulence, well, let's just say I do not plan on inhaling for a year. Clinton had one thing right. As I had mentioned before, I cannot believe how lucky we were with H1N1. Just as my ICUs were maxing out all their advanced life support and medicine, the pandemic died away. I remember being in one of my ICUs wondering if we were going to find a room and a ventilator if another severe influenza hit the ER. It never happened. It is better to be lucky than to be prepared. Again, if you rely upon the Atlantic or the Cochrane Reviews, you have no understanding of the subtleties, nuance, and variability in the treating of influenza. Now, does olsatamivir prevent complications? Maybe. Maybe not. But that's not a primary endpoint in treating infections. You want to cure the infection, shorten the illness, and prevent death. And olsatamivir does this. If it prevents complications, so much the better. But if it doesn't, I can, and so can my patients, live with that. The Atlantic article partly concludes, quote, There are a couple of take-home messages here. One is pretty obvious. Tamiflu may not be doing much good for patients with the flu who take it, and it might be causing harm, end quote. So disingenuous, since this is not the conclusion of the Cochrane Review, nor is it a conclusion you would come from if you actually read the medical literature. 
It depends on who you are treating and what strength. It seems that the understanding of nuance is not part of the Atlantic's oeuvre. Not even, it appears, reading the primary sources. The other part of the Tamiflu kerfuffle is more difficult to discuss because it concerns information we do not have. As the Cochrane Review alluded to the fact that they wanted to get the original data about the ability of Ulcetamivir to prevent secondary complications of influenza, but the company would not release the information. Note, secondary complications. Quote, Attempts to deal with these shortcomings were unsuccessful. Although three of the five first authors of studies on Ulcetamivir treatment responded to our contact, none had original data and referred us to the manufacturer, which was not able to unconditionally provide the information as quickly as we needed to update this review, end quote. But the Atlantic was, well, more descriptive. Quote, the dog ate my homework. But when the Cochrane team, led by Chris Dumas from Bond University in Australia, re-examined the studies they had previously used in 2006, they found some discrepancies. It turns out that only two of the ten studies had ever been published in medical journals, and those two showed the drug had very little effect on complications compared to a dummy pill or placebo. So the Cochrane reviewers decided to look at the data for themselves. First, they went to the lead authors of the published studies, the researchers who were supposed to have access to all of the data. One author said he had lost track of the data when he had moved offices, and the files had apparently been discarded. The others said they'd never actually seen the data themselves and directed the Cochrane team to go directly to the company. Four months and multiple requests later, the Cochrane researchers had a hodgepodge of data from the company, including two studies that showed the drug was ineffective, but which the company had never published. Roche, which has provided data from a third study, which involved 1,447 adults and adolescents, the largest study of the drug ever conducted. Yet the company never published that one either. A summary of this and other studies is available at Roche.com, but with only partial data, the Cochrane team couldn't even figure out what the studies had intended to measure, end quote. That is a problem. One of the things I have learned in blogging and podcasting is how limited and unimpressive meta-analysis and structured reviews are. They do pool the best studies, but often it seems in the process of choosing the studies, much important and relevant data is not considered. Most infectious diseases is not based on randomized, placebo-controlled trials, and probably does not need to be. One would have to be a wackaloon at the most bizarre fringes of medicine to demand that I treat endocarditis or meningitis on the basis of a placebo-controlled trial. Other diseases? Not so much. There is a bit of irony in the whole process. The first Cochrane review of Ulcetamivir suggested benefit from Ulcetamivir was published in 2005. One would have thought they knew what they were doing since the lead author is touted by the Atlantic as the master of the influenza literature. Subsequently, a Japanese physician wanted to know more about the details of the effect of ulcetamivir on preventing complications. Part of the data to demonstrate that ulcetamivir is effective is from an article entitled Impact of Ulcetamivir Treatment on Influenza-Related Lower Respiratory Tract Complications and Hospitalizations, end quote, which was the summary of 10 unpublished trials done by the makers of ulcetamivir. 
This study suggested that olmaltamivir halved hospitalization. The Cochrane Review, which had used the published data in an earlier meta-analysis, decided it needed to be more rigorous this time. Why they didn't bother last time with their alleged mastery of the literature to be rigorous, I am uncertain. And it casts a sliver of doubt in my mind as to the rigorousness of the influenza vaccine meta-analysis so touted in another Atlantic article and discussed over on Science-Based Medicine. It turns out Roche tried their best not to release all the data. First, they asked the Cochrane reviewers to sign a non-disclosure contract. Then they said they were giving the information to another group instead. Why the majority of the studies were unpublished were explained primarily with very lame excuses. Quote, It begs the question, why were so many of the trials still unpublished and not easily accessible? When the BMJ expressed concern to Roche, should be pronounced Roche, that eight of ten treatment trials were unpublished and therefore unverifiable by the general medical community, Roche said that additional studies provided new information and would therefore be unlikely to be accepted for publication by most reputable journals, end quote. They also added it is now standard practice for Roche to publish all its clinical data, but this was not the standard policy within Roche or elsewhere within the industry seven to ten years ago. Quote, by the time it was considered that all the studies were published reflected accurately the benefits of the drug, they said, unquote. Good questions. Drug companies can be real dirt balls. There's no other way around it. Given the history of pharmaceutical companies hiding and obfuscating important data about their drugs, it would be nice if they released that data. Most drug studies are funded by pharmaceutical companies. Does that invalidate the study? No. A drug company study can be just as well done as one funded by the NIH. That outcomes will be slightly tilted in favor of the drug if it is funded by the company as compared to compared to non-drug company funded studies is, or at least should be, well recognized. Some studies are well done. Some studies are a little better than infomercials. In the end, you have to read the literature, not the reviews. So I can't comment on the validity of Alcetamivir to prevent complications. Neither can the Cochrane Review, and neither can the Atlantic, who concludes that it is all just a mirage. I think the Atlantic is all sound and fury, signifying nothing. Then, for each study, you have to decide what the results of the study is, what is the spin put into the discussion, the spin from the drug company reps when they show it to a doctor. Kind of like a Cochrane review, huh? The review says Tamiflu is modestly effective. Yep. The conclusion says, because of the moderate effectiveness of neuraminidase inhibitors, we believe they should not be used in the routine control of seasonal influenza. A little fact, a little spin. And then the drug rep, er, I mean the Atlantic, says it is all nearly worthless. Lots of unjustified spin. And remember the conclusion of the review. Evidence for or against their benefit for preventing complications of influenza is insufficient. Pretty mild. The British Medical Journal has a nice discussion on the information as such as can be determined from the studies on prevention. By themselves, they showed no efficacy, but when combined, maybe showed benefit. But with no access to the data, there remains uncertainty. 
Do drug companies hide and spin important information? Do drug companies inflict bias into studies? Do drug companies inappropriately influence doctors' prescribing habits? Is homeopathy nothing but water? Yeah, which is why you need to consider the entire medical literature. But to quote the ever-helpful Dr. Hill, quote, All scientific work is incomplete, whether it be observational or experimental. All scientific work is liable to be upset or modified by advancing knowledge. That does not confer upon us a freedom to ignore the knowledge we already have or to postpone action that it appears to demand at a given time. Unquote. Like evolution, there are multiple lines of evidence to demonstrate ulcetamivir efficacy against influenza. When it should be used to get the most bang for the buck depends upon the strain of influenza and the patient being treated. And when, not if, we get a pandemic influenza that is both highly infectious and highly virulent, I hope we will have a drug like ulcetamivir. It will not be a panacea like penicillin for syphilis, but it will keep some people alive who would otherwise die. The Atlantic concludes, quote, The more important issue, however, involves the need for trust in science and medicine. Governments, public health agencies, and international bodies, such as the World Health Organization, have all based their decisions to recommend and stockpile Tamiflu on studies that seemed independent, but which in fact had been funded by the company and were authored almost entirely by Roche employees or paid academic consultants. So did the Cochrane Review, at least in its early assessment of Tamiflu. Millions of people took Tamiflu as a result. End quote. We need the Fourth Estate to write and publish quality articles on science and medicine and not to go for the easy story about good and bad and obscure important details in inflammatory prose. It would be nice if the fourth estate took the time to, oh, I don't know, maybe actually understand the nuances involved with what they're reporting on, such as influenza prevention and treatment. The Atlantic, now to be called the Atlantis, is 0 for 2 with their reporting on influenza. But at least I get a topic to podcast about. And so ends QuackCast 42 the Tamiflu spin. Oh yeah, George Bush, he's a moron. Now, if you'd like to participate further in my multimedia medical empire, listen to my other podcasts, The Gavit O Pus, also known as The Adventurers of a Pus Whisperer, and my PusCast, a review of infectious disease literature. And of course, I blather away at my blogs over on Medscape, Rubor, Dolor, Kalor, Tumor, and my twice-monthly scribblings on science-based medicine. Can I really scribble since I use a computer? And finally, go on iTunes and write me a glowing review. My ravenous ego demands feeding. Feed me. Feed me. This is copyright 2010 under the Creative Commons license. And as always, it's my son playing the guitar years ago. See you next time for another Quackcast. Thank you.